As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, FA Cup. Ian Acho, man of the macho, as Leicester put out Man United, Saints, Man City and Chelsea also through Premier League, Newcastle flagging like an MP on breakfast TV, Villa Spurs just put something like job done, and drama at the London Stadium with OGs and OGs as West Ham let a three-goal lead slip against the Gunners. We look back on all of that and get a cheeky look ahead to the weekend's international games too. Ooh, it's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yes, it is, listener, and thank you so much for being with us on this Monday, the 22nd of March, or any day of your choosing thereafter. Dust has settled on a busy weekend across uh, various competitions, and we're joined by Daniel Story. Lovely to see you, Daniel. Hi, James. Great to have Dion Fanning with us as well. Hello, Dion. Hi, James. Hello to you, and whoop, whoop, it's the sound of the David Priest. Hello, the David Priest. Yeah. Good evening, Hello. James, yeah. David, where are you calling from? Does it sound like I'm far away? Well, where I do, yeah, it does. Where are you? I'm I'm just in Lincoln, not too far away. Well, that's quite far, isn't it? No longer, no longer in 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 Nordic lands. No, I'm back home now. Uh, right. cut, cut short my contract by a year, so it's time yes. to come back now. I think time to come back. Time to come home. All right. Have you had your brain octane oil? <laughs> <laughs> what? What's that? Oh, uh, it's just part of you know a modern kind of preparation for a busy week ahead. Some green powders, brain octane oil, no tracksuit bottoms, that kind of thing. Um, that was probably one of the highlights of the weekend. Daniel, what would be your highlight of the weekend? I, I think Brighton um, Newcastle was the game of the weekend, and and therefore. It needed a, an emphatic result, I think, for for both teams to stop it, it kind of lingering on for two weeks and nobody really knowing where anyone stood. Now we know where those two sides stand, um, and a, a, a kind of such an emphatic win and a win that kind of felt more than just three points, three goals. Mm-hmm. Kind of performance Seagull supporters have been dreaming of. Do we know where Arsenal and West Ham stand now, Dion? I, I I don't know if we do. I I would say that was the the game of of the weekend. But uh, I'm and we might get into this a bit more. But I'm controversially, I'm always a bit skeptical of 
how impressive it is when teams come from 3-0 down. I think there's something, uh, what do the Americans call it, garbage time. And uh, I think there's, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's something in that. So, what, what, Why garbage time? Because when you're losing 3-0, you don't have anything. It's much easier to play when you're 3-0 down than it is when it's 0-0 or 1-0. So mm. uh, Arsenal are able to get back into the game at a, at a point where the pressure is off in some ways. Right. Well, it, it's the new, very dangerous scoreline, isn't it, being 3-0 up? It, it's happened a number of times. This, it's the third time this season in the Premier League that the team have been three goals to the good and ended up drawing 3-3. Anyway, we'll touch on that and much more. Uh, in deference to its venerable status, shall we begin with the FA Cup? You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. It was the quarterfinals this weekend. What happened? Saturday, the only team yet to concede a goal in this year's competition sailed on. That's Saints, of course, who were 3-0 winners at Bournemouth. Man City, meanwhile, taking 84 minutes to find a way past Everton, but running out 2-0 winners. Same scoreline for Chelsea on Sunday, but they did have some scares in the second half against Sheffield United. While at the King Power Sunday afternoon, Leicester picked at a loose Fred and United came apart at the scenes. Uh, 3-1, the score there. The draw, which was made at halftime at the King Power, sees Saints taking on Leicester in the semi-finals. Uh, not sure if there have been any previous games between those two that we should mention. Uh, and also, in the other semi-final, Chelsea get to take on Man City and try and deny them a quadruple. Crikey. Mm. David, what, what did you watch of any of that? Well, the one game that I took real notice of was today's game, um, Leicester and Man United. I thought it was um, it was typical of Manchester United in many ways, and typical of Leicester. I think the difference between the two uh, teams was the, was the managers right from the off. I think you know you look at uh, you look at Leicester City today, and you see they had a game plan, they had like a structure, the way they were going to approach the game, and and it paid off. Uh, None more so than when they they, they pressed to. Uh, to, to get the first goal and uh, United played straight in their hands and I don't know about you but I look, watch United over the last couple of seasons and you often get the, these up and down results because they don't seem to have um, any methodology behind the way they play some people saw them as a, as a counter-attacking team where they, you know, they've got lightning quick attackers that they can break on teams very quickly and take advantage of a, a really strong forward line but I think that when they come up against the, the, the likes of Leicester and uh, and Brendan Rodgers, when they have you know come up with a plan to deal with them, they, they don't have any answer. And of course, the the European game during the week that can take its toll as well. And maybe it was a case for resting more players, but um, or, or, or not resting the players that they rested. That's a subject close to, to Daniel's heart. But for, but before we get to to United, Leicester, so much fun in this game, and so much for this late season collapse that a lot of us were anticipating, particularly without Madison and Barnes. Yeah, uh, well, the late season collapse doesn't look like it's happening, but I still would uh, separate to some degree whatever Leicester are going to do in, in the cup and reaching the semi final is great for them. But the 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 season still, the late season collapse or not, still depends on where Leicester finish in 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 the Premier League. I think so. I I think this is an important result for them in terms of you know continuing to to. To, to to demonstrate that they're sustaining something, but I don't think uh, I don't think this is the most important game of of Leicester's season, or that these are the games, the cup games, are the games that will define their season. 
Are you with Ollie with his cup games are for egotists philosophy? I, I am. Well, I'm. I think, yeah, I am, and I, I wonder um, what could he be looking back on on the recent history of Manchester United and recalling that uh, Louis Van Gaal was sacked hours after winning the FA Cup. So whether it's for egotists or not. It doesn't actually do you any good as manager of Manchester United mm. to win to win silverware if the silverware is the FA Cup or the Carabao Cup, um, and so I think that's that's one of the issues when people talk. And I think it's kind of people talk. You know, managers need to win win silverware, and I actually think sometimes it's a bit of an insult to supporters because supporters can actually see, especially these days, they can see as David said that there are there are things that supporters look for now that go beyond uh, maybe a, a cop especially. And they are, you know, a sign that a team is progressing, a team that's going to finish in the top four, which is much more important for Manchester United. Um, right. And they're the things. I'm not, I actually don't think they're things that you can actually say Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is necessarily right. doing. I agree with David on that. But I wouldn't say that not winning silverware is something to condemn him for. At the risk of talking about Leicester again, though, are they not in a position to be enjoying both at this point? Because comfortably in the top four and through to a semi-final. Uh, can we have some love for the extraordinary Ian Acho? Nine goals now in nine games. Man City will be ruining the day they let him slip away. <laughs> it just shows what, what com- a bit of confidence can do. Um, I liked before the game that he came out and, you know, someone fed him the very obvious question of you play for Man City and this is Manchester United and, you know, does this mean it means more? And normally you get the, the standard answer, well, I'm in form and you're trying every game, yada, yada, yada. And actually he said, yeah, it does. You know, it means that I really have a an extra reason and I'll probably try even harder to, to beat them and therefore scoring two goals... Um, you know, he's clearly absolutely brilliant and he's on fire. And we, we, we discussed it last week when we said that, you know, Rodgers deserves huge credit for playing this two-striker formation to try and, ostensibly to try and get more out of Jamie Vardy. And actually, it's 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 not sparked Vardy into scoring. He didn't score against days, eight games without a goal. But Ian Acho is the one reaping the rewards. I think it's, uh, I don't know whether I'm oversimplifying things here, but it was interesting listening to... Uh, to Tealman's talking after the game about uh, Inacho and about how sort of how quiet he is and sort of very sort of introverted and converting that onto the pitch when he's playing up front by himself, when he's replacing like for like for Jamie Vardy, it's it's kind of a, it's a big responsibility shoulder. When he's being put up there with Jamie Vardy and they're working as a pair and the, the focus isn't just on him to be scoring the goals, I think that's helping them massively. Anybody else you want to pick out from Leicester? Uh, Soyuncu, uh, Tillemans, you mentioned. Uh, who else caught your eye from the Foxes? The risk of being controversial given Jamie Vardy's last few seasons. I think Wilfred Ndidi is their best player. Um, there's both him and, and Eve Basuma this weekend who have both produced absolutely extraordinarily consistent performances which is just being in the right place at the right time every time and as soon as they get the ball they recycle it pretty simply but their job's done at that point and both of them have this Kante-esque ability that every time you you want them to be in a place they're there and I think there's a there's a kind of risk with those players of assuming it's because they're herring around everywhere it's not really about that it's about the perception it's about the reading of the game and Basuma's only 24 I think Wendidi's about the same and they're pretty kind of extraordinarily complete midfielders for that age 
Um, Manchester United would be vastly improved by signing either of them um, because Fred is at the moment is a is a, a kind of walking accident in that he does eight things well and two things very badly, which at Manchester United isn't isn't good enough. I think Fofana as well has been exceptional. Like he's another exceptional game today, and it's that thing that Leicester have that that the, the players that are coming through there now they all seem attractive to other clubs. But what it tells you is that there is a structure. Uh, you know, you you look at the amount of players that have the people say they would do well at a, at a more established club, but that's because of what they have uh, created there. So there are players coming along and prospering, and he's another. I thought Fafana was exceptional today. There'll be the usual rotation of of uh, guilty parties that will have the finger pointed at them from United's point of view, whether it's Fred or Martial, who's coming in for a lot of criticism for his lack of performance in the the kind of central striker role. But Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, something, Daniel, that you were talking about, was this curious approach to resting Bruno Fernandes in that he didn't when he needed a rest against Real Sociedad, and then he did today. Solskjaer will have had a motive for leaving out of the starting lineup, but what do you think it might have been? Well, he says he isn't tired, and Bruno says he isn't tired. And, I mean, maybe he would. He always planned to rest him in this game, although that seems a really strange decision from my part, whether he believes you know, whether he believes trophies are, the, are for egotists or, or not. Um, but the fact he also rested Luke Shaw, who's been probably their second best player this season, um, suggests that there was a deliberate rotation policy, which seems a bizarre thing to do in, in a really difficult FA Cup quarterfinal. You know, Man United picked really strong teams in the previous rounds, which then seem, makes it seem really odd when, you know, one of the hardest games in that competition you could face and you then rest players. Oh, in front of an international weekend as well. Yeah, I mean, Solskjaer did, you know, a couple of weeks ago, kind of intimated that he might be able to pull out Bruno from international duty because of the quarantining rules. Portugal have picked him, so... The international break as a, as a rest is, a, I think, is a bit of a misnomer because he could play three games in the next two weeks for, right. for Portugal. So, um, but still, uh, if Bruno says he's not tired and Solskjaer says he's not tired, I don't know why today isn't the game he, is the game he doesn't play. Okay. One other thing on United, unless there's other things you want to throw in, but uh, John Sands asking: Is Donny Van de Beek the most disappointing major signing of the last summer window? Uh, Havertz and Werner run him close, suggests John Sands. What do you think, Van der Beek? I think there's probably more potential for Havertz and, and Werner to actually improve, and especially uh, the way Chelsea are going. I think there there is that uh, there there is there is an opportunity for them to fit into that into that system. Whereas for him, it it hasn't worked, and um, uh, whether that's his fault or whether it's the again a club like United, which who still don't really make signings in a, in a sort of a holistic way where they, they understand what every player is going to do. But I think, he, yeah, it's, it's, it hasn't worked for him. I, I, think, I think that's a real good point, that, because it, it, it's, it just smacks of buying a, a very good player and then trying to fit him in rather than buying him for a role. And, and yeah, from the very off, you know, he's, he's come from very high expectations from, from coming from Ajax and doing very well there. And then coming, sit on the bench, and then there's a big focus on him, and it's just been a downward, uh, downward curve from. He's not the first player to leave Ajax and fail to live up to the the hype elsewhere. You could argue that Matthias Delict has has had similar issues 
at the back for Juventus. But he's a midfielder and he's playing in midfield. So explain it to the thickies like me at the back. What is so very different about what he gets asked to do at Man United to what he was excelling at for uh, the Amsterdam Giants? Well, he, I mean, Ajax essentially play this possession-based system, um, which is based on kind of some pass and move and fairly patient play that then builds up to this kind of crescendo of, of faster play. Manchester United are almost the opposite in that they look to invite teams on and then at their best, as David said earlier, counter-attack at, at lightning speed, which, I mean, that's that's almost the opposite of Van der Beek's game. You know, I'm sure he, every high-class player can play that over time, but it seems an extraordinary decision to pay x million pounds on a player and then say right well we like what you did before and now we're going to try and make you play the opposite way for um in a completely different system i like as both dion and david have said you're you're buying a player and then trying to immediately change him you, you know you don't do that with you know, good clubs don't do that manchester city saw a need for ruben diaz they brought in exactly the player they wanted Leicester saw a player in Wesley Fofana that they thought could be exactly what they wanted in a central defender. They didn't suddenly ask him to play a completely different way. And it's it's just very strange. Mm. How, how confident are you that the recent changes to the setup at Man United uh, are going to make a difference on this? Daniel's frowning, no, wincing now, <laughs> wincing. No, I mean, it, to me, it's smacked of, and I may well be wrong here, but it's smacked of... Um, business as usual, basically. I, I don't want to say jobs for the boys because that's incredibly unfair on the people that have got the jobs. I think they're probably good. I think Darren Fletcher is probably very good at what he will do. But while you still have that committee, which effectively leaves Ed Woodward in transfer charge, then I, I think it, it feels a little bit like debt chair rearranging. All right. Well, in the meantime, Man United exit the competition. Leicester goes through to the semi-final. They've never won the FA Cup, of course haven't reached the final since 1969. They may fancy their chances this time as they take on a Saints team who themselves bounced back from their recent slumps with a 3-0 victory over Bournemouth. Uh, there was much comment in the in the Match of the Day coverage. I don't know if you saw this on Saturday night when they were at the site of Bournemouth's pre-game huddle. Firstly, because Jack Wilshire was in it, and I completely forgot that he was there at the Vitality Stadium, but also because body language it just it just spoke of the wrong the wrong approach from the team and and that certainly seemed to be manifested in the, in the scoreline uh, Nathan Redmond the star here with two goals and an assist and generally looking electric uh, Hasenhutl was asked afterwards why he doesn't do that more often uh, he didn't have an answer do you guys he's, yeah i mean he's one of those players who who hit on the scene and had I mean, he had bags of pace when he was at Birmingham and all very similar actually to Damari Gray in that what got them there hasn't just hasn't really kicked on. You know, sometimes it's those players who are really strong physically when they're young, who then when they go and play at a higher level, they don't really have that dominance that they had when they were growing up to gain the reputation. With them, it's almost the opposite. It's, it's the speed that, that it just doesn't seem to have given them enough else. I mean, Redmond was incredibly highly rated at Birmingham. So was Damari Gray. And yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm just looking now. I mean, he has got an England cap, which I was just checking. I thought he had one and he does have one, which it just seems that he's a world away from that now. And yet he's not, you know, he's not old yet. He's just not 22 years old anymore. And therefore it's not potential. It needs to be actual consistent ability. He just really performs in flashes, which is a bit of a shame. 
place your bets. Welcome to Pep Roulette. Ta, I'm feeling confident today, me. So your selection, sir? To start off from blue number nine and ten. Seventeen as well, just behind the front two. Good luck, sir. Blue number seven, unlucky, sir. Sterling, he started last week. Predicting Pep's lineups can be tricky these days, but fortunately, with Paddy Power's Acker offer, if you don't get one leg of your four plus fold Acker right, we'll give you your money back as a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, mid on 25 on each leg, on an exclusive exclude shop bets, excludes enhanced match odds, T's and C's apply, 18 Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. The other side of the road to Wembley, although that's where obviously they'll already be for the semi-finals, is Man City against Chelsea. Crikey, what do you think of Chelsea's chances of stopping Man City? Dion? I, I think they have a chance. I think there's uh, Chelsea are becoming, you know, we, we, we've seen what... What has happened there, um, you know, the, defensively they've become very, very solid. They were they were a bit fortunate against Sheffield United. Um, the, David McGoldrick, like that, that that was an astonishing, really astonishing miss. And and Sheffield United kept getting chances. They, mm-hmm. you know, they had other like Brewster at the end even had a great chance, which uh, you know he, he, he went for a corner, but actually he should have scored. Like it, it should he should have really. Um, he should have scored that as well, but obviously McGoldrick's chance was was the best one, and Chelsea were kind of hanging on a little bit. But I think they will um, in the cup with City stretched in in all competitions. They 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 Chelsea will have a chance. I think mm. it was a remarkable second half actually from Sheffield United, who have now lost more games than they have scored goals this campaign. That's uh, twenty four defeats and just the twenty three goals, but they came very close, as you say. Uh, on, on several occasions there in, in quite a turnaround and, and quite a surprise, I think, for those of us who felt that the Blades would probably collapse without Chris Wilder. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, the the biggest problem that, that Paul Heckenbottom's faced since he's been in was uh, to try and, uh, as he, he said, is to try and put uh, smiles on faces. Of course, it's more than that. Um, you know, they were a very downbeat sort of uh, group the last week or so. It hit the the team hard, obviously, but it it was a case of maybe it's more the what he was going to do in the pitch it was to try and just uh, to get them to play together as a team and to try and put that to the side and uh, and just move on a little bit and um, and and I think that he'll be encouraged certainly by the the second half performance because I know that way that uh, that, that Paul wants to play his. Um, I've known I've known him since we were summed together a long time ago, and um, you know the way that he set up his teams when he was uh, when when he was coaching, uh, he's taken a coaching degree uh, at uh, I think it was at Leeds Uni, and he did his thesis on um, it was on the early years of Simeone at um, at Atletico. It was kind of like how he sort of um, he, he approached uh, the game when he was at Barnsley, and you could see a bit of that today. You know, they were a bit physical. There was people complaining that they were a little over physical, but sometimes it, it takes something like that for 
to to galvanise a team or to, to you know to raise the intensity in the in the in the game. And certainly, although this is a Chelsea side that was much changed and you know maybe he's a little bit disjointed, um, you know they can take great half on the second the second half performance. And like you said, they they should have gotten something more out of the game. Or at least uh, extra time, if, if nothing else, which seemed to be very much the target for Everton in their clash with Man City. And they very nearly got the uh, the prize of an extra thirty minutes defending against Man City. Uh, <laughs> Eighty four minutes they held out for, and then Gundogan again, and uh, Kevin De Bruyne had come on and made quite a difference. Uh, fair enough, really, from Carlo. Is it against this Man City? What else are you going to do? Yeah, I mean, although it was, it was. It, almost an embarrassing uh, mismatch in the first half an hour. I think 25 minutes or 30 minutes in, it was 207 passes completed versus 16 passes completed, which... um, Seriously? Yeah, which kind of indicates that the way Everton were playing. But yeah, they just completely sacrificed possession and said, you know, we can quite easily lose the game in the first 30 minutes. So let's just try and stick in. And um, the problem with that approach is that City are so good... Um, that as soon as you switch off for a minute, it's pass, 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 and you're through. And the goal had a little bit of fortune. It was kind of really unfortunate on the goalkeeper, who obviously is the third choice goalkeeper, reacts really well to the the deflection and tips the ball onto the bar. And obviously Gundogan's just there to stoop diving header in. Mm. Um, And yeah, and at that point, it's very, very, very hard to change gear and suddenly decide you're going to attack for the last seven minutes because you've, you've not tried for the rest of the game. Right, and then De Bruyne finishes you off with a rocket. Uh, obligatory goalkeeper question for you, David Priest. What did you make of Jao Virginia? Yeah, I think it was a tough... Uh, it was tough when he first came against Burnley, you know, when it's you know it's your debut and he comes after 48 minutes and he did look a little bit nervy in that game. Uh, but I think the, the the game yesterday have done the world of good. A couple of great saves, Um uh, there was another one from was it, uh, from Raheem Sterling that he just tips it away and uh, and he's going to need that kind of uh, confidence come from those performances if he's going to continue and go. Dion, how tremulously do you ant- do you <laughs> anticipate this this golden dawn of of uh, Man City becoming the first ever quadruple winners? Is that would it be amazing or or or, or really not amazing for the game? I think it would be it would be it would be probably depressing when we've seen what happened with uh some of city's kind of cup you know their fa cup triumph before when when city actually sometimes when they reveal how dominant they are it is quite depressing i i I think from city's point of view again to go back to the silverware question the only one that really matters to them is the champions league i think of, of all of them that's the one that that matters the others really won't make much of a difference really uh now that they're in this position, though, do you not think they, they, they care pretty strongly about not getting beaten by by any of them by Spurs in the, the League Cup final and Chelsea in this FA Cup semi? They would rather lose the the FA Cup semi final and the League Cup final if it's sure. guaranteed than winning the Champions sure. League. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they, if they had to pick one, if you're going to do that kind of mm. Meryl Streep esque, uh, <laughs> you know. But Mike, from a supporters point of view it would be a remarkable achievement and it's spoken of in kind of reverential tones they could do the quadruple but when you see them this dominant against you know that decent premier league side like everton yeah it, it it would be quite a depressing thing to have them just hoover everything up in one season it's depressing when you see that you know 
teams setting up like against uh, against them like Everton did. And if you're going to concede, you know, or only have twenty six percent of possession, you've got to be near faultless or absolutely faultless to get anything out of the game, whether it be a, and that might be just a draw. And uh, I think that's the, the game against Chelsea. They're, they're only going to be the, the only team that uh, that can challenge them really, because they'll obviously take more of the ball as well. And, uh, and Tuchel's he's proved himself to be a canny operator now, hasn't he? No, yeah, he certainly has. I'd say the yeah. only the only thing the thing that makes it astonishing to me this season is that they were eighth at the turn of the year in the Premier League. That that's the remarkable thing that this kind of this dominance, this complete serene dominance actually came out of what was being perceived as a bit of a crisis. Mm. Um, I agree that them winning every trophy most seasons is not a particularly good look for um, kind of financially engorged leagues. But um, yeah, I don't think we can doubt the fact that, you know, at the start, it's only four or five months since people were saying, is Pep Guardiola finished at Manchester City? Yeah, I think that makes it at least a bit more interesting because there has been this sense, you know, we started the season, as Daniel said, people talking about this and this is the end for Pep at City and uh, it was going to you know, be a sort of sort of slightly dismal wind down of his time. And then now we're talking about this team whose absolute dominance will cast a cloud over over football for a generation. So it's... Yep. Um, I'm guilty it's, it's, of both those statements. It's it's true, <laughs> and it it does beg the question of why you know why we or why I turn up for the first half of the season because it it plainly has no relevance to what actually happens. We had City were down eighth, ninth, tenth at one point. Saints were leading the table. I mean the whole thing's just yes. Anyway, well that's the FA Cup then. But as we head towards the sharp end of the season, it's a time for big cup clashes. Coming soon questions so the choice was Kaiserslautern or Eintracht Frankfurt answers I'm gonna go for Eintracht Frankfurt dirty tricks well I'm gonna do that horrible thing of saying 90,001 agony I think James summed it up you sly sly dog ecstasy James Horncastle you're in the quarterfinals how do you feel see you and some filthy, filthy sounds. Wow. Uh. Ooh. The Intertotally Cup. Rebooted. Bigger and badder than ever. And coming very, very soon. Yeah, the Intertotally Cup is back on Thursday, apparently. So if you were thinking of skipping out on our pre-international weekend Thursday Totally show, don't. Because it's back up and running. Oh, we have with us last year's runner-up, Daniel Story. What kind of training regime have you been on in the months? I mean, I haven't, I haven't yet replied to Nick Miller's WhatsApp message. So have you not? That's, that's the level of training <laughs> I've done so far. Right. Okay. I will. You probably got multiple competitions to juggle, no? Yes. Something right. like that. Mm. Excellent. Okay. Well, anyway, yes. Yeah, so the Intertotally Cup returns on Thursday, which is nice. Now, uh, should we move on to the Premier League? Uh, it was a big weekend. Let's see what happened. There was a great result for Newcastle. That was Fulham getting beaten by Leeds. The Magpies themselves uh, collapsed 3-0 away at Brighton, a result which moves the Seagulls six points clear now of the drop. Further up the table, Spurs had a 2-0 win at Villa, while a hugely entertaining game Sunday afternoon at the London Stadium saw West Ham racing to a three-goal lead against Arsenal in the first half hour and then scoring two own goals to let the Gunners back into it before Lacazette grabbed an equaliser. What a game. 
Dion, I think you were calling this the game of the weekend. I'm not going to argue. No, it was it was fantastic. Uh, like West Ham seemed to be, you know, again just you know asserting that the sort of the return, the rise, the rise, the unstoppable rise of David Moyes, uh, and um, uh, and then as as I said earlier, Arsenal got back into it. What 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 you can read into that, I'm not not so sure, but it's uh, you know it is it was a very good. And very important point for them, I think, and a good to get back, especially after last weekend as well. Mm. It's, it is important for them. Well, it, I mean, it was a massive week. They had the victory over their traditional rivals, Olympiacos, uh, and before that, uh, the North London derby as well. And maybe they were a little bit sleepy at the start. Was that what West Ham took advantage of, particularly the excellent Jesse Lingard with that snappy free kick? Yeah, it was criminal, wasn't it? The uh, Everyone just went to sleep on the free kick, turned the backs. Uh, it was really clever by uh, Jesse Lingard. Even Arsenal's goal in the second half, it was almost similar where, they, uh, where Arsenal get the, the free kick and they take it quickly and, uh, and they score a goal from it. Same bit, bit of a game for that, but it's... Um, uh, Arsenal are just a, a strange side because you expect them to lose 3 0 leagues, not to come back from it. And But at the same time, you can, you can still say... They're sort of flakiness like that. It's this is typical of them, and as Dion pointed out in the at the start of the program, it's a lot easier to to come back and, and start playing when you're already two or three goals down. Pressure's off you, and, right. and I think they'll they'll be feeling that as well. The manager will be say, uh, know that as well. You can give them credit for coming back into it, but of course, that, that's when the pressure's off. It's easy to play when it's like that. Mm. It's, it's even easier when your opposition gives you couple of uh, own goals as well to get you on your way. You, you, typical Arsenal perhaps, but um, typical West Ham, our, our pal Benji Lenyado uh, tweeting when they were 3-1 up, a core defining part of being a Hammers fan is the deep understanding that we probably won't win this, and, and so it proved. But before we get on to, to that, can we, can we just quickly touch on Jesse Lingard? I know that everyone's kind of had a, a comment or two about how nice it is to see him back and flourishing under David Moyes' tutelage. But what exactly had they done to him at United? He was so good when he started there, and then he became this kind of living meme. He hadn't scored in the whole of 2019. And he hits a, a new club, and all of a sudden, boom, he's off again. I think there's a there's a, a, a clearly a, a, a lifting of a bit of a weight there. There's an awful lot of pressure and responsibility and, and scrutiny I think when you're at a club like Manchester United, especially uh, a player like Lingard, um, who was aware of that responsibility, and I, I don't think I, I think through no fault of his own, a lot of the time, it's it's hard to kind of sustain sustain it with that pressure on you. Now, you know the, the one thing you always have to avoid with Lingard, and it's kind of interesting now at United, he was always kind of referred to as you know a young player, even as he kind of hit his mid twenties and went way beyond the stage of, of being what we would consider a young player. Whereas, but that kind of told part of the problem because it's, it, it reveals a kind of mindset about, about what you should be as a Manchester United player. And at West Ham, he's become, you know, very quickly become a, a mature player and a player who's, who's been handed responsibility and is taking that responsibility. He's, he, I think he's the fourth oldest player in the latest England squad, which is remarkable, really, given, um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, Kyle Walker and Harry Maguire are definitely older than him. And uh, I think one of the good, Nick Pope is as well, but I think that's it, which is really odd. 
but and he also has a manager in David Moyes who he, he did play pretty well for at Manchester United you know it, it, Manchester United weren't a great side at that point but Lingard was getting minutes at that point um so I think he yeah I think he, by all accounts that squad has got a really good kind of shared spirit at the moment and if Lingard is good at one thing it's that he he gets on with people you know he, he players like him all the Manchester United players really liked him you know when they, when he saw them before and after the game when they played each other recently you know he embraced all of them and they all you know they're his mates so I, I think he's a very easy player to parachute into a squad and get along with everyone pretty well which helps mm. Oh, it also helps when when he scores opening goals like the, the the wonderful strike. He got things underway with in this, and then it was the uh, the clever work to um, set up Bone for the second. Suchek grabbing a third before Arsenal began their comeback. In terms of our desire to pinpoint progress uh, by young managers like Arteta, are there any conclusions we can draw from Arsenal's second half? Just to counter the, the argument of what I was saying before about you know that um, you, you know it's easier to play when they're uh, when they're three 0 down, but also it's about it is a ninety minute game. People forget that as well, you know, and it, it's uh, you know you don't win your prize at half time, and it, it's maybe in it, it's maybe in an e- easier position at half time to be able to uh, uh, to change things and to uh, and to make these decisions a little bit clearer and. Um, uh, and to, to have a bigger effect in the second half, but I think that um, it, it wasn't all the players in the in the team certainly who were sort of lifted themselves. I think Jimmy Carrick had a great quote when he uh, after this. I think it's after they scored the third goal, he said there was the biggest involvement that Aubameyang had in the, in the whole game was when he was celebrating, and that was his yeah. biggest influence on the game. So, and, and that also brings back the arguments about dropping him for the for the North London derby because. Um, yeah, if he's if he's not going to be that influential in games, then the managers it's much easier for it to drop him. So this is the thing. DW10 actually writing in saying, "Do Arsenal have an Aubameyang problem?" And also, how much would it take to get Odegaard to sign? But on the Pierre Emerick question, uh, it's not just the the lack of a contribution going forward. It's also the fact that you know with him you're not going to get anything defensively either. You're going to leave whichever side it is with really no kind of cover at all. Yeah, and, and especially when you, you're looking at the methodology that uh, that Arteta's trying to implement in there, it's you know you, you look at other managers with uh, Tuchel, um, obviously with Pep. There's no uh, there's no sort of space for any luxury players or anybody who doesn't work within that framework. And you know if w- one part doesn't work, then the all falls down. And I think that's uh, it's probably something that they're going to have to look at. And the, the the thing that he's been using all the younger players, he knows that they will. More often than not, they will sort of take his directions on board and, and implement them um, to, to the letter if he wants. And if he's not going to get from that the older players, then it, they'll just have to take the hit on the on his wages and, and keep him on the bench. Mm. It's not as if they've got a history of giving three hundred thousand pound contracts <laughs> to players that immediately look as if they don't. You you know you watch him today and you kind of wonder how he ever was a a key player under Arteta because he's. It's kind of everything that Arteta, not rails against, but Arteta wants this kind of, you know, 11 
workman with skill is the you know is the extra but he, the, the passing everything has to be perfect and Aubameyang at the moment is just a moments player you know three moments in a match one of them might lead to a goal and you say well that's fine you've done your job but that's that's not really what Arteta's been preaching so it's, it's a strange one. Do you think mm. there was any moments hesitation before they agreed that contract when they thought <laughs> You know, is there any is there any anyone knocking around here that might be a salutary tale in this in this regard? No, I don't think we, so. Do, you, do we feel like we're now at that kind of point that that's the road we're on? You know, I don't. Yeah, pictures I don't, of him in the with a sun umbrella in the stands and that kind of thing. <laughs> well, as Daniel said, because of what Arteta wants, it's hard at the moment. It's hard to see where where he does fit in, and again. I don't think it's as easy as also saying you can just not pick him and and say, right, these are these are my principles and he doesn't fit into those because there will be, with this Arsenal team, there are going to be tough times too. And while he's there, it, it, it's not as easy as saying, okay, we're just, he's, we, we, we're going to ignore the, the opportunity he has to give us those kind of special moments. Yep, some big games between now and the end of the season. He could yet prove to be key. This could be another thing that I could be looking back at the end of the season saying, why? Why did I ever? Anyway, so now uh, the Premier League weekend concluded Sunday night with Spurs and their trip to Aston Villa. Big question here, I think, for many people was how would Spurs uh, react to their week from hell, a.k.a. a normal seven days in late period Mourinho management? Uh, They lost in the North London derby a week ago and then... Thursday night, possibly the Nadir, although that might be optimistic, I'm not sure, of the defeat away at Dinamo Zagreb at the Maximir Stadium. Um, but lo and behold, they went and came up with a coherent and compelling and convincing performance. Is that right? 2-0 away at Villa? Convincing performance, but I, I think the graph is going, the line is going one way. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say the crisis is over. I wouldn't say they've reached. I wouldn't even say uh, Zagreb was in the deer. I think with Jose Mourinho, what we've learned from late Jose Mourinho is that things can always get worse, and uh, and I think that's the way it will go until until you know you have to like we we know we know his c- capacity for making things toxic, and it hasn't. I don't think it's even. I think we're even at like sixty percent at this really? stage. Yeah. But, there's a but, lot more to go. Like there's, there's, you know, more individual attacks. There's more players to be blamed. There's more poison to be spread around. Like it hasn't, we really haven't got, it hasn't got going yet. Dion, you mentioned the, the the line of the graph, but at the moment it's pointing in quite a nice direction. They're only three points off the top four, and here's some good news: they don't have the distraction of a cup competition anymore. So, I believe they were. <laughs> I mean, you believe they, what? they were. They were they were competent against Villa. I mean, it was it was a poor start, and I think if Villa had scored first, you really feared for Spurs. But they basically didn't make any mistakes. And actually, I thought Lucas Moura was really good, who is um, surely I, I suspect as of a few weeks ago would have been by far the least popular member of that band of Spurs attackers. But he and and the Carlos Vinicius were actually pretty good as a, a kind of surprise. I think they surprised Villa with the with the starting lineup. I mean, it felt like a, a late Mourinho, I'm now going to play the kids because this is my mesh to say I'm having to play the kids because I don't trust anyone else team. Um, but Tanganga did pretty well. Mora was man of the match. And in, in Don, and Dombelli and Hoberg, they, they have a very good central midfield partnership, which was... 
too good for Grealish less Villa, basically. Uh, on the bench, there is an influence to have, uh, to push the others. Um, in training session, the same. Everyone has to be ready to, to push and, and make sure that he is ready to, to help the team when the moment will come. Uh, it's not only uh, stay on your side and, and, and complain and... Um, because at the end, what we have to respect is this, is the badge. David, the most important among players, among professionals, a speech like the one given by skipper Hugo Loris after the Dinamo Zagreb exit, how will, how will that have gone down, do you think? Well, firstly, I think it's his prerogative as a, as a captain to be able to say something like that. But quite often, it's the, um, it's the sort of the last throws of something that's happened behind the scenes. So, I mean, we saw in the documentary that um, that Mourinho started all of this sort of, all this thing in motion about them trying to make them sort of um, nastier players and nastier team. And, uh, and so it's something that starts maybe in the middle of his reign or towards the end, started right at the very beginning. If anyone's to blame for, for the problems having in the dressing room or for what's, Hugo Luis was pointing to after the game in uh, Dynamo uh, Zagreb. I think it was it's him that's cultivated that sort of atmosphere. And now, when, when he's sort of coming out and saying, "Oh, that's a disgrace," and that really reminded me of the um, I don't remember the Scottish Cup final, nineteen eighty three. It's uh, Sir Alex Ferguson. You know, they win the they win the cup one nil, and he just comes out and slates him and, and says it's a disgrace, and uh, that that sort of standards we set, but. He's coming at that from a position of power. Now, you turn that to Tottenham, where there's obviously problems behind the scenes. There's obviously not the same characters that have, uh, you know, that Sir Alex Ferguson under, under him. And he, he can sort of, it can be a measured attack on them knowing get a response. If you don't have the right characters in the dressing room, it's only going to go one way. It's only going to get more toxic. And you can see by the... As he pointed, to, as Luis pointed to, the fringe players not contributing and um, not having the right attitudes when they're not in the starting eleven. Then, for me and in my experience, that's just the, the beginning of the end. There's always things like this, whether it's from a player, from the captain, or from a manager. It just started all off. Dion, what's your prediction for 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 where next on this graph of yours? Where next do you want me to? Well, I, 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 it's not, it's not much of a prediction. It's just looking at looking at history. Uh, I think there's just more more poison to be released there, and more people to maybe turn on each other, more players to be scapegoated. I like. I think I think what David says is interesting about the Larice thing because I think it's it, it's always a sort of a, a risky business when it when a player does that because the minute you have people outside saying this is great to hear this this honesty. I think the the exact opposite reaction has been said within within dressing rooms. Like, why is this guy coming out and making everybody praise him for his honesty? It's not so much they don't they don't want the honesty. The idea that some somebody should be getting the plaudits right. for being honest, I think, is is a is a damaging in a in a dressing room dynamic. Loris, who, who of course had that strange scene where he kind of ran up and attempted to have a go at Hyung uh, Min's son at halftime of a of a game and son by all accounts about the most beloved of figures within Spurs. Do you think would this have isolated Hugo Lloris then amidst the many factions within Spurs? Do you think David? Yeah, 
I can see that happening. You know, he's obviously, I always saw him as somebody who was very calm and measured the way he is on the pitch. And then you see those scenes in the, in the dressing room. He's obviously more emotional than, uh, than we've seen before. But when it comes, whether you're a captain or whether you're just the goalkeeper, it's immaterial. If you're going to come out and say things like that, you have to be, uh, or your performances have to be flawless. Because as soon as you make a mistake, the other players will just jump on you, and then the, the fingers will start pointing, and you become then you become a, a little bit of a hypocrite because you're not you're not performing. And um, whether you've got a World Cup winners medal or, or not, you know, I think the the, the players won't um, they, they won't see that in a in a great light. Well, there you go, Spurs fans. You were celebrating a two 0 win this weekend. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, well, uh, so now that's where things stand at that end or the sort of middle part of the table. But down at the bottom, two absolutely huge games in the Premier League this weekend. And let's get on to those next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to the Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D.com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Yep, Friday night, it was Leeds winning at Fulham, and Saturday, that Brighton 3-0 win over Newcastle, which, Daniel, you were very excited to talk about. Yeah, for, for both reasons. Um, Brighton, I thought, you know, Graham Potter has, has not come in for some stick this season, sort of the opposite, in that he probably feels a little bit embarrassed at the amount of praise that Brighton have had when he knows that the situation has actually got to almost an emergency. Um, but he just got it absolutely spot on against Newcastle. He picked Welbeck and Mope as, as centre-forwards without the ball. And then as soon as they got the ball, those two strikers kind of drifted left and right and Trossard just burst through the middle. And then the other thing he did was have the, these kind of non-natural wing-backs in Jacob Moda and Pascal Gross, who, because Welbeck and Mopo were providing the width, they just tucked inside and just, again, stormed through the middle. And I think he basically thought, Newcastle are going to sacrifice possession, they're going to invite us on, so we can try and do things a little bit differently here and try and unnerve them. Because if we do regulation stuff, Steve Bruce's Newcastle are 
if they are anything, it's that they can defend against things they're expecting. And Bruce, after the game, and I thought it was funny, it's the third ma- third year in a row that Bruce has faced Brighton and he said, they surprised us and we didn't really know how to cope. I and- was absolutely shocked at basically Brighton being that far in front of us in every department tonight. They beat them 3-0 <laughs> at St James's in September as well. Where was he that day? Yeah, it's... a. <sighs> Uh, but 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 to be fair, I mean no, not to be fair. But Brighton have played a different way in each game. Okay. Um, uh, I don't think how how Newcastle how passive Newcastle were in the first half. I don't think it would have mattered if Brighton had played with nine and played them all in midfield. To be honest, but um, just doing things differently, it, it did kind of you know emphasise just how different these two clubs are in in terms of. I mean, they're they're basically the opposites of each other. One mm. is that one is a club where hope is being created, and another is a place where hope's going to die. Basically, so they couldn't be more opposite. Right. Newcastle starting passively, but then of course when Brighton scored, they had to come out of their shells and attack the game. Except they just didn't for the entire ninety minutes. Why? What, what was the point of it all? It was extraordinary. Um, it's um, it's an international break, which has overtones for clubs that might be looking at their managerial positions and the wisdom of continuing with the incumbents and that kind of thing. Is is there any likelihood, any imminence of a change? They say not. I mean, um, Sky Sports, who have always been pretty close to the Ashley situation, um, reporting that though they don't plan to make a change and... <laughs> using the from the sky sports report said because of bruce's loyalty to ashley and passion for the club which if there was what if, if there were any newcastle sports not riled up by the situation at the moment i'm not sure bruce will be thanking them for saying you know at least he's loyal to ashley that that isn't how to curry favor in the northeast mm. at the moment so uh yeah it's pretty bleak All right banners on the streets of newcastle after that defeat calling for him to go true faith calling Bruce the fraudy Geordie, a memorable turn of phrase. They were 10 points clear of the bottom three in February, Newcastle. They are now, well, still two points ahead of Fulham, but of course they finished the season at Fulham. Oh, my word. That's going to be mm. huge. They got a brutal uh, brutal run but before that. They've got Spurs, West Ham, Liverpool, Arsenal, Leicester and Man City. So, hmm. Anyway, Fulham, meantime, uh, entertained Leeds on Friday evening. Leeds returning to your weekend's winner's section, Daniel, I imagine. Yeah, Patrick Bamford as well, who who missed out on an England call-up last week um, and had been touted for one. Again, scored and assisted despite limping around for, for most mm. of the first half. Um, yeah, four, I mean... <laughs> Easy to forget that he played for five Premier League clubs before this season and scored a single goal, and now has you know he's the second highest scoring Englishman in the Premier League this season, which is some turnaround. It's remarkable, isn't it? He thanked his teammates for doing a lot of my running after the final whistle, uh, which was nice. Um, Leeds two one winners. They could have had more as well. Two goals ruled out for offside. It was a particular shame that Luke Ayling's uh, goal was cancelled because the celebration was magnificent. David, uh, bar robbing us of good celebrations, eh? Yeah. Well, these, we still have the celebration. We just don't have mm. the, the goal. <laughs> the goal doesn't exist, but the celebration will never be yeah, taken away point. from us. That's very true. Can I get in early for a Fulham backlash? If any, if anyone's starting one of those, that's three defeats in four now for Scott Parker's uh, side. They've lost ten of their last sixteen at home. 
Is there a case to be made that he should be doing better? Yeah, it feels like you're not allowed to... They'll put you in prison these days for saying that Fulham should be playing better. But, um, yeah, I, there are, they're just not good enough in the final third. You know, Dos Madja scored on his, twice on his debut and hasn't scored since. And Mitrovic, I think, has scored once in the Premier League this season. And The one that's disappointed me is, is Loftus-Cheek because I thought this might be a real breakout season on loan from Chelsea. Kind of this, It felt like everything was right. Still in London, in the Premier League, regular starts and he was meant to be that link between attack and defence and it just hasn't really happened. And yeah, I I still think they'll probably go down, which is completely really? against all, Even with all that narrative. Final, yeah. Even with that final day game against Newcastle, do you think it'll be out of out of their sight by the time they get there? Or, or that Newcastle yeah. will spring us? Wow, crikey. Because yeah. it, it was just 2-1 this and, and there was that moment when... Uh, Adamola Luckman had the miss and then Leeds immediately went down the other end and scored. So fine margins and all of that. Uh, Leeds anyway with the victory. Of course, the club in mourning this weekend after the death of uh, Peter Lorimer, which uh, they announced on Saturday morning. Club legend, of course, at Leeds. A name that rang out uh, in playgrounds across the country back in the 70s, courtesy of his extraordinary lash. I think it was once clocked at 107 miles per hour. But... Part as well, David, of one of the all-time iconic FA Cup moments, which I know will be close to your heart as a Sunderland fan, the double save. Leeds are really pushing forward. Terry, brilliant save. And Lorimer makes it one each. No. Astonishing. Jimmy Montgomery was actually my first goalkeeping coach and my youth team coach at Sunderland. And um, I always teased him, said if he caught the first one, I wouldn't have been in me for the other saves. But um, yeah, it, it's it's an iconic save, and of course, it's probably not uh, it's not Peter Lorimer's finest uh, finest moment. But um, yeah, it's part of uh, part of goalkeeping history. That's it. It is remarkable. I mean, watching it back now, without the angles, you know, without the different camera angles, it's very hard to understand what laws of physics are involved in the ball not going into the net. And Lorimer is completely befuddled by the fact that he hasn't just equalised. But anyway, uh, extraordinary, extraordinary power in his foot. Do, do you know what? I was listening to uh, Bob uh, Bob Wilson and he was talking about every time that he faced him, which was, he faced him a lot during the uh, 60s and 70s. And he said that when he got the ball within maybe 30 yards of the goal, he knew the ball was coming at him. And he said... He, he, no other player struck the ball like him. And it was almost, he could feel the fear inside him when, they, when, when he touched the ball at his feet to shoot. His, uh, his shot was that hard. So was, and yeah, on, on top of that, he was, a, he was a brilliant, brilliant player. And for all the goals he scored as well, he, he wasn't a striker, was he? He was, a, he was a winger. And for somebody to have that sort of that build and that sort of that, that connection with the football, uh, you don't associate that with wingers, do you? It's a it's a it's a quaint thing as well. I know it's almost a cliche now when you look back at his career, but how long you know his association with Leeds as a player was you know from from the early sixties to you know going back and finishing there in eighty eighty four eighty five, and then I, I I interviewed him once in his pub in in Leeds, you know, and it was like again it is a cliche but this idea that this great figure of the club this huge figure in the history of the club is running a, a pub a, a pub as a friend of mine described as a lively spot he said it was you know that was the that's how you could describe the pub i went in there on a friday afternoon to kind of interview him and it was you know it was packed and it was that kind of a place and there's peter Lorimer 
working behind the bar in the pub and that's you know and that was the way you know he gave himself to the club and he was a part part of the city so when someone like that dies i think it does it, it has a you know it has a real profound effect and again it's one of those um you know there's so many reasons to kind of to mourn things apart from even the death of people but to mourn aspects of football that we don't have this year and when you think about how he would be remembered if Ellen Road was full it's kind of sad that you don't actually get to have that this year mm, that's very true what would, how was you how did your interview go very great he was great he was lovely you know it was very hard to get in this lively spot it was very hard to find somewhere where you could actually talk quietly to somebody but he was uh he was a lovely he was he was a lovely man and uh but he, he was just one of these people who was he was kind of committed to Leeds in every sense well peter lorimer uh who passed away on saturday now very very shortly uh, we're going to be talking about internationals England are favourites for the Euros, says Daniel Story. You can hear his thoughts on that very, very shortly. Also, Ireland, perhaps also favourites, I'm not sure, from Dion Fanning. Uh, first of all, though, let's get some odds from Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. Hello, James. Hello, listeners. We are down to the last four in the FA Cup, and the market is as follows. Man City, 4-5. to five. Leicester 16 to 5, Chelsea 7 to 2, and Southampton 9 to 1. The same amount of goals, 9. Leicester put past the Saints a couple of years ago in the Premier League. But after Dion Dublin pulled out Southampton to play the winners of Leicester and Man United, you can be sure Brennan Rodgers was licking his lips, and there will be plenty of takers now on Leicester at 16 to 5 to lift the cup, while City's quadruple credentials will certainly be firmly tested by Thomas Tuchel's well-oiled blues in the other Wembley semi. In terms of the champion League, Manchester City, no surprise, are top of the pile there at 2-1. to one. Next up for them is Dortmund and what is a brilliant draw for the purists. Erling Haaland is the apple of every club in Europe's eye and will surely be watched very closely as City look to find the heir to Aguero's soon-to-be vacated throne. Second in the betting lurks the holders, Bayern Munich at 7-2 and Lewandowski and co may not be the relentless juggernaut that they were last season but Bayern have looked like their old selves of late and will be a stern test for Pox PSG. But value tends to find the brave listeners, and PSG's brushing aside of Barca with ease was worth taking note of. So if you think Mbappe and Neymar hold the keys to unlocking this year's competition, you may like the look of the French giants at 8-1. to one. In the Europa League, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's last chance of getting his mittens on some silverware this season continues, and it's his Red Devils who are the favourites at 13-8. to eight. They had their chances certainly enhanced when Jose's Spurs decided to capitulate in Zagreb in midweek. United also got the plum draw. Granada from Spain and face Ajax or Roma in the last four if they progress. Arsenal fans and many neutrals will fancy the Gunners at 3-1 to one, and there'll be plenty of takers. Arteta's men are second favourites to lift the trophy now. They need it for Champions League qualification, remember. But they have to get past Slavia Prague, whose bite is worse than their bark. Just ask Brendan Rodgers. But Brendan won't mind, though. He'll be picking out a nice new suit for his trip to Wembley next month. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Totally Football League show is out on Monday and it'll be followed on Tuesday by a welter of podcasts. You've got the Totally Scottish Football Show, which will be discussing old firm things and, and lots of other things as well. Uh, the Offside Rule WSL edition, that'll be out as well. 
and the Totally Football Show European edition, which will be a busy one, uh, discussing the Europa League draw, the Champions League draw, of course, and loads of action from this uh, weekend. I don't know if you saw Armand Lorienté's remarkable free kick, which has caused much debate about the nature of a good free kick or not. Uh, Anyway, this is what the French commentator thought. We hear if Julien Laurent is equally enthusiastic. Uh, in Tuesday's show, we'll also be discussing Juve losing at home to Super Pippo's Benevento and, and many other top, top stories. Uh, but anyway, speaking of football abroad, internationals. World Cup qualifiers start on Wednesday, uh, which is nice. That's for the World Cup. Euro 2020 is happening this summer, we're told. And I see, Daniel, you wrote this week that England are pre-tournament favourites. You said it was as weird as seeing your school teacher when you're out with your mates or a seven-foot NBA player dressed in a suit. So on the kind of scale of weirdness, that's the point we're at. Yeah, I mean, I should say that's, I mean, that's not an opinion that England are pre-tournament favourites. That's a fact that England are pre-tournament favourites, okay. both with bookmakers in the UK and abroad as well. Sometimes there's a bit of bias, UK mm. bias, but yeah, they are, which is, I think it is weird. I think France have got a better squad and won the last major tournament. But that's the nature of it. And the column I wrote was just basically saying that, well, two things. Firstly, that this is a huge summer for Gareth Southgate. And secondly, that there's this kind of notion that the the thing for him to do would be just to throw all the kids on and go and attack a tournament, which is all very well saying that. But then that's the sort of thing that leads to turnip headlines when you then crash out in the last 16 because you got picked off on the counter by Germany and lost 4-0 or something. But right. yeah, it, you can't do that. You look at recent international tournaments and it, it's a lot more guarded than that these days. There isn't any Brazil 1970s anymore. Daniel, you are Gareth Southgate. What's the first item on your agenda? Uh, well, to bringing David into the conversation, I think the goalkeeping situation is the is the biggest question. Uh, I think it's the, the uh, probably the only... Um, absolute question mark in his squad in that in, in terms of I still don't think he knows who's going to be number one this summer who should it be David well, that's a big question for him isn't it I think you know looking back to the, the World Cup in 2018 we went in that tournament with not really a, a definite number one obviously John Pickford played, did play and it played very well now, and I think we could have done with a little bit more stability this time but it, he does have a, it's a nice problem to have where he's got two other goalkeepers in Nick Pope and, and Dean Henderson who were, now Henderson's playing regularly, obviously Pope is playing well regularly and uh, he's got three different goalkeepers that he can choose from if he wanted to for his horses for courses, you know. He, he, for me, I, I, I keep going back to this idea of if you're playing it in, against the side who you're going to have more possession then maybe you can uh, have Jordan Pickford in in goal. Um, if you're going to progress further in the tournament, you're going to concede a lot of possession to teams. Get somebody who's used to being in a position like that, uh, like Nick Pope at Burnley, and and play him in in those games. But of course, this injury to to Pickford it, it throws everything up in the air again, and that's what you don't really want. You don't want this kind of uncertainty going into the into the tournament. And I, and I think it'll be be really interesting to see who he goes with now that Dean Henderson's obviously getting the regular football that he needs. And over the next two weeks, certainly with Manchester United career, it's going to be defining really because if 
Solskjaer sticks with him or goes back to David De Gea. That's going to be a big question mark back at club level. But, yeah, Henderson and Pope, uh, uh, it's, it's a big question who's going to play it. And I think, that's, I think Nick Pope's probably deserved it. Yeah, you honest. think Pope? You would pick Pope if you were Gareth Southgate? Yeah, at the moment. And I think that, um, of course, Dean Henderson's playing well, but it's over a short period of time. Uh, and, um, and and Nick Pope's proved week in week out over the course of the season he's he's ready for it and like I said uh, I I, th- I think you can choose between two goalkeepers two different types of goalkeepers depending on the game uh, and you know th- this this might be a chance this might be a chance to do it you know when the you know for for one of the games play one keeper and then another game play for the, the the next one I think that's really interesting that what David says about that you know it hadn't struck me that if you're going to be out of possession against a Germany or a France. Maybe you pick a goalkeeper who plays for Burnley and therefore they don't have much possession. We've never really seen that at international football before. You know, I know Tim Krul got brought on for penalties, but that's about as far as it's gone in terms of picking specialists for the opponents. But it makes it makes complete sense when you think about it. If you know if if, if you play for a team that dominates the ball and suddenly you're not seeing the ball for 10-15 minutes, then that must be hard for a goalkeeper. Yeah, very true. Uh, Dion, yes. uh, Re- Republic of Ireland won't be featuring in Euro 2020 stroke one. Um, but there's a brand new set of qualifiers for uh, World Cup, which is exciting. Uh, Republic, how, how, how are you getting on under Stephen Kenny? He said, knowing the answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, when you asked before the show, what was there anything we wanted to talk about? I was going to flag that maybe I didn't want to talk about. Uh, Ireland, but it is a new, it is you know a new uh, group of games, a new, mm. a new new opponents to not score against. Um, <laughs> so, um, Republic haven't scored since Kenny's first game in charge. That's which right, is haven't scored in seven games. Seven games, right? Yeah, play Serbia on Wednesday. Yes, uh, and then host Luxembourg, and then. You play Qatar or Qatar in, in, in Hungary. In Hungary, well, yep. surely you can score a goal against one of those teams. You would like to think so, yeah. Um, but yeah, we would like to think that by the time Qatar comes around, um, Ireland might get a goal. But the World the, Cup, or <laughs> well, the World Cup, I, I don't think that Ireland will be will be there. I feel like when I'm on, you know, on this, I should, I, I have to kind of give some. It's like when a you know, a government minister appears. Not that I'm comparing myself to a government minister, but when they go on a foreign TV show, they need to actually, you know, sell, speak up for their country. But uh, I'm finding it hard to do that. No, they're they're. Um, it's going to be very tough. I this could be a pretty uh, defining week for Stephen Kenny um, already. I think there's a, a lot of grumblings. There's a lot of there's a you know the the because things have gone so badly. Um, there's been other stuff, you know, Damien Duff, who's part of the coaching staff, has left the coaching staff whilst, you know, ex- professing his loyalty to Kenny. He, he expressed some frustration about the FAI and there's a sense that things aren't, you know, various elements of, of, of the setup um, could be under pressure. The Serbia game looks a daunting one. There's more players out this weekend. Cuevin Keller, Liverpool goalkeeper, is out. So Mark Travers, I think, at Bournemouth is going to is going to start. There's some some more, play, you know, three or four players uh, out again this weekend, um, and that looks like about five year five years ago. I think it was Martin O'Neill. Martin O'Neill's Ireland played Serbia 
in in Belgrade in a two-all draw in one of the most ridiculously bad games I've ever seen. Um, and Ireland would take that now. But I think if they didn't, don't get anything there. And Luxembourg, again, Ireland would be expected to to win there. And if they if they didn't, I think it it could be there'd be an awful lot of pressure on 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 Kenny at that stage. Is is it just a managerial issue with with Republic, or are there other factors? Like I don't know, are they not aggressively targeting people with the right grandparents anymore? To <laughs> well, you know, we've talked about two players uh, in this show, Nathan Redmond and Patrick Bamford, who right. at times have been both were sort of courted by uh, by Ireland managers. Um, it doesn't. The, the main problem is 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 the quality of the players. Stephen Kenny has got an idea of how he wanted Ireland to play, um, which is 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 progressive and is a, I I I agree with what he wants to do with the team. Um, the years under Trapattoni and Martin O'Neill were, to my mind, kind of wasted years in many ways because of the the way Ireland played and the the pointlessness. I think international football. Uh, at a much higher level, England have demonstrated kind of what it, it, it needs to be about. It's got to give, it's got to give something to a country that feels that there's uh, something aspirational to it, something that a, a country can be proud of, rather than I think what happened under O'Neill and Trapattoni, kind of random uh, good results surrounded by incredible dross and you know a, a football that you really didn't want to watch like you know i i've been at some of the ireland games you watch especially under trapatoni but under, under o'neill as well where you think this is not why would anybody want to willingly go and watch this um and kenny is trying to change that and he's he's a thoughtful manager um but again because his background is primarily in the league of ireland uh, people question, or he he's open to being questioned about his pedigree in terms of uh, is he the right manager for international football? So there are bigger problems, much bigger problems than the manager in terms of players. You know, when you talk about players, they didn't they didn't get Declan Rice, didn't get Jack Grealish, who both played underage for Ireland. Um, if they had those players, it would be a totally different story. But it comes back to the manager. The manager will be the person who gets it one way or the other. Well, there's some exciting fixtures on the way. England with Albania. You've got Wales against Belgium. Thursday sees Northern Ireland take on Roberto Mancini's Italy. And uh, we'll be, you know, discussing a lot of those kind of things in Thursday's show, as well as having the return of the Intertotally Cup. So I'm not sure who's featuring in this opening round or indeed whether Daniel will be returning to the competition after the, the pain of last year's defeat in the final but uh, it's going to be a cracker whoever's there and I do hope you'll be joining us for that listener for now though it's many many thanks to Dion Fanning to David Priest, and to Daniel Story and producer Charlie and you listener anything you want to add David Daniel Dion before we wrap it up just time to get my pyjamas on now alright then lovely <laughs> or take them off for you perhaps listener it now being Monday morning. You are now free to continue with your week. Thank you so much for being with us. We'll catch you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. 
The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.